Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of The Bell Tale includes details of a murder and injuries which some listeners might find disturbing. I just stayed in to see if he'd come home, but he didn't. September 1973, just before the schools come back, a 10-year-old boy goes to the local park to play. He never comes home. Of course, all that night, I kept it, my front door open. Went outside to look for him, called his name, Brian. Brian, come on home. But there was no signs of him or no, nothing. Somebody had took him away. A week later, a sack containing his burnt and mutilated remains is found in the River Lagan. In the front room, there was a police constable with her arm around my mum. My dad was just sat in the chair, mortified, and I realised then it was bad news. He was so small, his charred and dismembered remains fitted easily into a hessian sack. It soon became a very big inquiry. What happened to Brian McDermott? There were a number of different leads. I think the police eventually distilled those down to kind of three main leads. Uh, And then the third angle that they had looked at at that particular time was actually a black magic angle. They arrested his older brother, William McDermott. In fact, in an interview, his other brother, Eddie, described him as evil and depraved and a very dangerous, violent thug. I'm joined by Liam Tunney, who's been following the story. Liam, you're very welcome to the Belt Health. Thank you very much. Who was Brian McDermott? Brian McDermott is a very, is a, almost a famous case uh, at this stage because of the length of time it's been unsolved. He was a 10-year-old boy who went missing in 1973 at the start of September. Just as the schools were coming back, um, he was actually due to start a new school. Um, before he disappeared, he had left home to go and play in Ormo Park, which was close to his home at Well Street in the Woodstock area. And when he didn't arrive home for his his dinner, as I would say, he his mum started to get worried and then they started to look for him then. Um, a few days later, his photograph was on the front page of the Belfast Telegraph and there were search teams combing East Belfast looking for him. Harbour police had scanned the lagging up and down, but no no sign of, of Brian anywhere. And there were these huge posters. Anyone I've spoken to from that era remembers the big posters outside Ormo Park with his face on them um, vividly, because the people I'd be speaking to would have been children at that point too. And they just remember these massive images of him. Of course, this is one of the worst years of the, probably the second worst year of the Troubles, but still a 10-year-old boy missing. They seem to, you know, sometimes people go missing and people think, well, they must be somewhere, but they seem to really get very worried about Brian very, very quickly. 
Mm-hmm. I suppose at that point there were people going missing uh, quite often, but uh, Brian was so young and it was so out of character for him not to have come back that, that the alarm was raised almost immediately. And th- that search began within hours of, of his disappearance. His body was found a week later. Um, the lagging was lowered uh, by whatever means they do that, so they must have had some inkling or... Well, I mean, obviously they were searching everywhere they could, but they had some sort of inkling that he, his remains might have been there, but they probably had no idea of what they actually would find. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that point they had been searching for a week. They had combed the streets around his home. They had looked around Orm- Ormo Park where he was last seen, or he, he had at last went um, to play with his friends. The, they were going up and down the lagging constantly, and at one point, I think the army were involved in the search, military police, it had been mentioned, and they spotted this, this sack in the, the river, which is then retrieved from the river, and when they opened the sack, they saw the remains of, of Brian. Um, just remind listeners and that uh, just before we continue, I think this is nece- a necessary part of, of this, but before uh, we continue with this, the details... These are very upsetting to to anyone. Uh, Bren had been brutally mutilated. He had. Um, his remains were found in a Hessian sack, and both his legs and one of his arms had been cut off. His torso was so badly burned, it was impossible to recognise his features. Um, he was eventually identified from the fingerprint on his one remaining hand, and they actually, in something that was really harrowing, they compared that that fingerprint to prints taken on the schoolboy's exercise books from school and that was how he was identified this is a 10 year old boy who has met his end in the, the most brutal of fashion the rest of his remains were never actually recovered this so this is a brutal murder there's no doubt about that this is this is murder um, even at the height of the troubles the death of a 10-year-old, the murder of a 10-year-old and the mutilation of a 10-year-old would have struck a chord and would have been dealt with, would have been taken very seriously by by the, the RUC as it was at the time. What did they do? What was the search for evidence? What leads did they pursue? There were a number of different leads. I think the police eventually distilled those down to kind of three main leads. Um, one was a sectarian angle because obviously at that point the troubles were raging and this is something that that was happening quite a lot. Um, another angle was the kind of sexual exploitation angle. At that point, the the kind of Kinkora, the Kinkora scandal was in its early stages. There was just a few details about that coming out. So people linked it to that in some cases because that, that atmosphere was there. Uh, and then the third angle that they had looked at at that particular time was actually a black magic angle. Um, which may seem strange now, but that was that was something they looked at at the time. But just we will be uh, in in the in the coming episodes of the Bell Tower, We will be looking at that black magic angle, how it related to this case and to many other cases, and to how the security forces actually used black magic uh, as part of the intelligence war against paramilitary. So we will be looking at that. Um, but I think uh, I think the quickly the sectarian um, possible motivation was ruled out, uh, and I don't think that, that I mean 
Kinkora. Everything seems to be linked to Kinkora, but I don't think there's any evidence of that here. There, there wasn't any. Um, and police actually made that point at a later time that the, there was no real evidence to link it to Kinkora. But at that point, I think they were just grasping. They were looking for any kind of lead that would that would take them to to finding the truth. At one point, in a bizarre turn, the Ulster Defence Association, the UDA. Um, offered a reward for information um, leading to the capture of, of his murder. Um, at that point, they were not a prescribed organisation. They offered a £500 reward that would lead to conviction of a suspect. And they said the, the crime was so horrific that they had dropped their normal policy of not cooperating with the authorities um, in order to provide this reward. Um, so that gives you an idea of the kind of atmosphere that the, the murder took place in. As well as that, the angles, obviously the body had been burned, so police had probed a, an angle that there were there was bonfire debris at nearby Balfour Avenue, which they had probed um, in case that's where he had been, been burned. Um, they followed up calls to the public, they checked on known sex offenders in the area, they consulted missing persons files, and in a UK first, the RUC actually bought airtime on, on UTV to kind of air an appeal for the public to get in touch. So this is a huge, we're looking back at it now 50 years on, but at the time this would have been massive news. This would have led every news bulletin in the country. And almost the first kind of mass public appeal of its time. I mean, there always were, but of this in the modern age with TV and etc. It is incredible that the forensics sh- 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 demonstrated that Brian's body had actually been burned over an open fire, um, suggesting... I suppose, for want of a better word, and I hate to use the word, a kind of a, it's quite an amateurish attempt. But still, you would have thought that this fire or the, you know, would have been, you could have traced this fire. But of course, we're talking about 1973 here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the forensics obviously were not as developed as they, they would be today. The, the open wood fire obviously led them to the debris at, at Balfour Avenue. It also in future reconstructions because this case went on and on because it wasn't solved as time went on there were future reconstructions of it for the likes of Crime Watch and programmes on TV um, some of those showed groups of boys in the in the park with the kind of suggestion that they were starting fires in the park so there, because it's so such an old case and because there's so much conjecture around it I mean the theories ran wild I mean it's just, whenever people don't have that truth and there's a vacuum there, people feed their own information in and the police then have to follow up on all those leads. And I suppose, I mean, all of these leads and all of this conjecture, I mean, that is that is something which we as journalists may be interested in. But I suppose the main reason we're talking about this is, one, this is the 50th year, this 50th anniversary, and secondly, no one was ever convicted of this. No one has ever been charged even with, with this murder. So let's look at the aftermath. Um, I mean, were there any, did the PSNI make any further progress in the 70s? Were there any arrests? At the time, police did make arrests, but they didn't become clear until a later point. Things meandered along. I mean, the initial media coverage of the the murder was was huge. There was a big flurry of activity. But thereafter, it started to to die down as, as the news cycle moved on. And obviously... This is in the middle of the troubles. There is killing going on almost daily. Um, so, you know, it kind of drops off the front pages. But every 10 years at the anniversary, there was another flurry of activity. And the most notable one came in 1993 when, on his 20th anniversary, an anonymous letter accompanied by a drawing of an alleged suspect was sent to the Sunday Life. 
the Sunday Life put this on the front page. It was a, a drawing that someone had done. The letter accompanying that drawing said it was a man who lived near Ormo Park in 1973, included personal details of the man, including a precise address, which the newspaper then passed on to the, the then RUC at, at the time. That information then led to another flurry of calls to both the media and the police, including claims people had seen him abducted. One woman said she may have actually smelt his body being burned nearby on the night he disappeared, and a senior detective was then appointed to deal with that upsurge in calls. But ultimately, that that came to nothing. And then we come 10 years further on to the 30th anniversary. Uh, And that, and we mentioned Crime Watch already, but a Crime Watch appeal, a fresh Crime Watch appeal, urged people to come forward. Welcome to Crime Watch, live from Television Centre in West London, with detectives, as usual, here from all across the United Kingdom. This is your chance to help with the fight against crime. And to Belfast next, and a police inquiry that started so long ago, the people involved could now be anywhere. Those who know something may finally be prepared to talk. We're travelling back some 30 years to 1973, well, DCI George Hamilton joins me now. George, it's a tragic case, this one. And it happened 30 years ago, so why are you bringing it to Crime Watch now? Well, yes, this is the 30th anniversary of this crime. And what we want to do is to bring the people responsible to justice and also to provide... Detectives said that they were edging closer to making an arrest. Then they did make an arrest. They did make an arrest, and it was an arrest that, that probably surprised many. Um, they arrested his older brother. Um, William McDermott um, he was arrested he obviously denies having done this however uh, it later became it later emerged that he was arrested in 1976 while still uh, a youth and that he had made confessions to the police he he admitted it he later withdrew that admission um, and that was the situation at the time he was then obviously arrested again in 2004 when they further questioned him on the incident, but he was never charged with anything at that point. He's never been charged, and he's never been convicted. Let's be clear about that. But what we can say, and this is on the record, um, his family and Brian's family, they don't believe him. They think he did it. Mm -hmm. They do. Um, In fact, in an interview, his other brother, Eddie, um, at one point said he was turning his back on his brother. He said he totally disowned him and described him as evil and depraved and a very dangerous, violent thug. Um, he said he believed he murdered Brian. And, I mean, that was that's what he felt the family's opinion was at that point. Again, I have to stress, I have to stress that um, William uh, or Billy McDermott has never been charged or convicted with this crime following the murder of his brother Brian he ran away he joined the army and he also changed his name now he had been arrested as we say uh, in 1976 and uh, he had come to police attention for an assault on his own mother who, who was called uh, Joan he has a long history of violent convictions uh, and is a scheduled one offender after attacking a three year old boy he was entrusted to babysit um, he has at the last count or the last information we have in 2008 he had 17 convictions for violent offences he lives in England uh, we found that out during a court case in which he was charged with harassing his former wife uh, Sarah McLeod and she becomes part of the story 
She does. Um, it's important also at this point that that Brian's mom and dad had had passed away. They had gone without learning the truth of what happened to him. And at this point, then his brother Eddie took along uh, took a lot of the responsibility for coordinate with the media. Um, in two thousand and eight, William McDermott, who at that stage had racked up seventeen previous convictions for violent offences was living in England and he, he found himself in court for harassing his, his former wife Sarah McLeod. Actually on their first date he went to her house for coffee and brought a file of newspaper clippings about Brian's murder with him. Uh, the wife, his wife said he showed me the clippings and started crying uncontrollably. It was very strange because it was a first date but very clever in a way because it made me feel sorry for him and that's how he got me. It was a big sympathy vote and I felt heartbroken for him. During the hearing for harassment the prosecution then revealed that McDermott had confided in Ms. McLeod that he had murdered his younger brother Brian in 1973. On his release from prison for that particular offence, he did an interview with the Worcester News in England, in which he said he was fairly sure he did not kill his brother. Now, those were his words. I have had to question if I am responsible for this. I'm fairly sure I did not kill him. I have never had any flashbacks like you see on television. Is what he said. Now, this is where the story gets very bizarre because he's fairly sure he didn't kill his brother he, because he hasn't had flashbacks. He went on a first date with a, with, with, a, with a woman. She says he confessed to murdering his brother on the first date. Now, I think the vast majority of, of, of people would run a mile at that stage if and run a mile in the direction of a police station. She didn't. She felt sorry for him. She married him. And later... Um, uh, she had to take him to to court for harassing her. I mean, that is beyond bizarre. Once again, I'll stress, William McDermott has never been charged or convicted of this. His family, his wider family, believe that he that he did kill his brother. His, some of his statements in regard to this uh, are bizarre, to say the least. But again... He says he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And he again made those denials in 2013 on what would have been the 40th anniversary of Brian's death. And in an interview with the BBC, he said, I was 16 at the time, and to consider what happened to Brian was outrageous, but they tried everything. Um, the motive that was suggested to him, he said, was a falling out with his younger brother. He said he had hit him across the back with a stick, and the motive was maybe thought to be childhood revenge, was what he said in, in that particular interview. He also revealed at that point that he had changed his name uh, by Deadpool and that he, I think his main point was that he wanted to, to move on. He, he reiterated his denials. He said he understood that his family may also still think it was him. But at that point, I think he wanted to move on with his, his life. Have you been able to contact him? I haven't. Um, I have, I've tried to try down both uh, brothers, um, in particular William. Um, I, I was unable to to even find contact details for them. Um, I had checked with the local paper who had, had done the interviews and they said, obviously, staff move on, people move on, and, you know, he was uncontactable. But that's probably by design as well if he's gone to the, the point of changing his name. Liam, it's been 50 years, but as we say, no one's ever been convicted. Um, in a case like this, at what stage do the police give up or do they give up? Is it an open file? And, and what does that mean? Uh, well, throughout the history of this case, the, the police have always maintained that it, it remains an open case and that, that hasn't changed. On its 50th anniversary, the, the PSNI told me that the murder case hasn't been closed, but they weren't able to give an indication of when it would, would be reviewed. 
I mean, they said that the, the case currently sits within the caseload of the legacy investigation branch for future review. Um, due to the caseload that they're currently dealing with, they're unable to give any undertaking as to when that review will commence. And they also said they understood the suffering that would cause his family as they wait the review and how difficult it will be for them. However, they did again stress the case does remain open and any new information about the murder should be brought to the attention of the PSNA. Liam Tunney, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tales was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The researcher was Olivia Peden. Clips from AP, UTV, BBC and Sky. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.